Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Well, we're going to start anyway. Just as we're turning there, um, as I uh, have often said, this pulpit, both literally and figuratively, is a place for the teaching of Scripture and uh, not a place for politics. So what I'm about to say is not political. Not political. I don't believe in mixing politics and uh, preaching, and I think that it's done far too often in this country and it's something that we shouldn't do. What I will say is simply this. We are commanded to love one another. And this is a church that gathers together because we share common beliefs. Those beliefs are concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and his Bible. That leaves a lot of room for other beliefs. And there will be, and I know for a fact, there are plenty of people here who disagree on all sorts of things, political and otherwise. And uh, I simply want to give us a little nudge this morning that if you are happy about the election, not to gloat, if you're sad or worried, not to fear. What I want us to do, all of us, is to trust God in the circumstances, for good or bad. But more so than that, I want this to be an opportunity for all of us to love one another. Because if we are Christian, above all else, that's what we're about practically, about loving one another, particularly us within the congregation. So if someone reacts to the political change in a way that is different from how you would react, don't brush them aside, love them. Listen to them, learn from them. Because you can't care for someone and love someone unless you understand them. So listen. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to do that. And I pray and I hope that while I see so much uh, fragmenting and, and, and shouting and raging and disunity against different people out there, that within here there is love and there is harmony and there is unity on the things that really do matter. And that where there are differences, we would forbear with one another, we would try and understand one another, and above all else, we would love one another. And that's not political, that's biblical. So on that note, we should all be in Ephesians 6. So let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, Lord, that you would bless us richly. Give us uh, understanding of your word, and that understanding it, we will be changed by it. And Lord, with this practical section here today, Lord, I just pray that we would, really all of us, myself included, just be able to really apply this stuff to our lives. May we be changed by this message here this morning, Lord, I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Ephesians 6. Let's just uh, read through again quickly and get the uh, terminology familiar in our heads once more. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand 
in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance and making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Should be familiar to us now. It's just a great passage. We're picking up this week in verse 13, just to... um, to summarize thus far, when we see in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, we're having an emphasis here on, um, on being strong in him. It is, this is what we've been looking at right the way through Ephesians. We've been looking at how God, having chosen us and having redeemed us, gave us his Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit creates this unity that we have with Christ, that Christ is in us and we are in him. And this unity that we have with Christ is because every believer already has the indwelling Holy Spirit within them. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the third person of the Trinity, he himself lives within us. And because of that, we are in Christ. And our strength comes not from ourselves, but from our association with Christ, from his Spirit being within us. And verse 11 goes on to say that we're to put on the armor of God, that's what we're going to look at today, so we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now we have mentioned here the enemy in multiple phrases. Verse 11, the devil. Verse 12, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces. And all of those different phrases refer to spiritual enemies. Our enemies are not people. They're not our family, they're not our friends, they're not our co-workers, they're not politicians. The enemy is spiritual. We are waging a spiritual battle against spiritual powers that require spiritual weapons. And we noted in great length the last couple of weeks the, the way that the words here create a link to the end of chapter 3 in Paul's glorious prayer that we be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the crescendo at the end of the book. This is not an appendix. This is Paul saying, because of everything that I've taught you, this is how we now are going to go out. Now, with that in mind, as we kick off in verse 13, I just want you to turn with me briefly to the book of Isaiah. Or Isaiah, as you quaintly say. It is um, chapter 11 to start with. One of my uh, life goals here, of course, is that some of you will say Isaiah accidentally without even realizing it eventually. (laughs) Working at it slowly. Isaiah. Just kidding. So Isaiah 11 is a famous passage, um, often read around Christmas time as well. Uh, It is a passage about the coming Messiah. 
And it talks about him. We've looked at this actually in our other studies. So I've, I've turned here at least three times now in, in recent months. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, just context here so we understand. Firstly, with the reference here to belt and righteousness and faith and faithfulness, we can see some of the links here with the, um, with the passage in Ephesians. We're going to look at three passages in Isaiah, all of which are painting a picture which Paul is building on in Ephesians. So Paul is building on what Isaiah has already said. Now here he's talking about the coming Messiah. And the Messiah is going to have the Spirit of God upon him. We've seen that in our studies in Mark. Come out tonight, by the way, for the next installment in Mark. We won't be doing an exorcism in case you were confused in the bulletin. We're talking about Jesus' first exorcism in, in Mark chapter 1. But we've seen the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him there. And that's what's referenced here. What, what is fascinating is verse 3 and 4, but I'll have to leave that for now, with him not judging with eyes and ears, but judging with righteousness, judging the poor with righteousness. God's always there for the downtrodden and the oppressed, a constant theme in the Old Testament. And of course in the New as well, book of James for starters. But it is that righteousness, he'll judge the poor, he'll decide with equity, and then we have reference at the end of verse 4 to him judging. With the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. When we see in a moment the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that being an attacking weapon, there we have a similar concept here in verse 4. And in that, in him judging fairly with the downtrodden and attacking fairly those who are, are wicked, we're told in summary that his righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That his, his armor, everything is held together by his righteousness and by his faithfulness. Now we often think of righteousness in terms of being righteous before God, but in this context it's very clearly the, more broad the context of him doing what is right. Treating these people right in giving them mercy and treating these people right in judging them harshly. That's the righteousness that is spoken here. And it is that truth that we're going to see coming up in, uh, when we see the belt of truth in a few verses' time. But let's go on to, through Isaiah. Let's turn to chapter 52. just want to get the Isaiah references out of the way and then we can settle back down into Ephesians. Isaiah 52, most of, most of you will know, is a passage that leads on to, at the end of the chapter, to the suffering servant passage that is so famous and going on into ch chapter 53. And it is about God's coming salvation and about him, uh, uh, his Messiah coming in his name. And 
If we look at verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's what the gospel means, good news. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Now, we've seen again this in our Mark studies, but again, context of Isaiah. God is going to come and save his people. And when God comes... It is a wonderful thing that people, heralds, who see him arriving will be able to go and say, hey guys, good news, God is here, God reigns, God is coming. And, you know, th there, is, there is a good thing. And you can see those passages being linked together in that God coming and judging righteously is a good thing. And it is a good thing to go out and let people know that God is now reigning. The wicked used to do wicked things and get away with it. The righteous were poor and downtrodden. But now God reigns. Now God has come and now he's putting those things right. This is all obviously second coming context, but that's what's being said. It's going to be important for Ephesians. And thirdly and finally, let's turn to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Now Isaiah 59 is talking about the wicked and the judgment against them. Interesting that in verse 15, it says that... Uh, Actually, let's go back even a little bit further. Let's go back to verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. So, we are, uh, we are sinners, and our sin is before God, and he knows. Transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness, that word again, stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. What we saw in our previous Isaiah passage is almost it's the opposite situation here. So God reigns, good news, God reigns. The righteous are now going to be okay and the wicked will be judged and God's putting things right. But here it's almost the opposite. If, if you stand uprightly, you make yourself a prey. You're, you're going to be treated badly for doing what's right. Your justice is turned back. This righteousness is far away. Truth is lacking. This is not a good set of circumstances. Then in the second half of verse 15, the Lord... Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him. There was no justice. So God is displeased by the lack of justice. He saw there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Now this is an interesting verse. I could, I could just spend my time in Isaiah and not in Ephesians. We may, we may not get through the whole armour today because this is important stuff. But try and follow this. 
God looks out on the world. This is prior to the second coming referenced in 52 and in part in, in, in chapter 11, okay? God looks out in the world and he sees injustice and he hates it. He hates injustice. And then he looks in verse 16 and he sees that there's no man, no person, there's, there's nobody there who can intercede. There's nobody there who on behalf of God is going to say, hey, what about the poor and the oppressed? What about those people being treated badly? Why are these people in power abusing that power? There's no one there doing the things that God would do and the things that God will do when he comes to power. Now, with that in mind, it then says, then his own arm brought him salvation. So God's arm, a reference to the strength of God, comes in and brings salvation and it almost implies that it's salvation to God, in that God brings about a situation that is to his benefit, a situation that he desires. And God, uh, his righteousness, him wanting to do right, upholds him. And so this is what God does, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly where we're going. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversities, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun and he will come like a rushing stream which the wind Remember, that's the same word as spirit of the Lord drives. So God is coming. Now, before we go back to Ephesians, context of this passage, okay? Terrible situation, God hates it. He wants, a, he's looking for someone to step in and bring justice and no one's there. So what does he do? He steps in himself. He puts on armour. Same phrase that we're going to see in a moment in Ephesians. Putting on armour. Now that's interesting for starters. Because God is constantly strong. God is constantly mighty and God is constantly powerful. So what does it mean when Isaiah says that God puts on armour? What it means is, is that now is the time for battle. God's always been mighty. When the poor and the oppressed were saying, where are you, Yahweh? He was mighty. When the wicked were going around oppressing, he was still mighty. But now that no one stepped in, God in his divine sovereignty has said, now's the time to do something. Now's the time to come in. And so he becomes, not that he wasn't already strong, but he now becomes in the sense of taking on the role of a warrior. God is the warrior. God is the one that will bring justice and God is the one that will come in righteousness. And he doesn't just come in righteousness, he comes in wrath, anger, fury. Well, that's our context. Let's go back to Ephesians. Let's take that wrath and that fury with us to Ephesians. 
Christians do get angry with people, with institutions. When somebody sins against you, they sin against you because they're a sinner. Seems blindingly obvious, but there it is. And we sin against people because we're sinners. And often when people sin against us, it's not malicious. It's just the outworking of their sin. Other times it is deliberate and it is malicious. But that's still sin controlling their lives. Remember what we saw in Ephesians 1, that God having chosen us before the foundation of the world, He then sent His Son to redeem us from sin. Redeem us by His blood. That His blood set us free from sin so it would no longer can control us. And there are people who sin because, when any of us sin, it's because of the control of sin in our lives. The very thing that Christ died for. So who is it when we're sinned against that we should be angry with? Should we be angry with the person who sinned against us? who's hurt us? Or are they not, to some degree, themselves victims? No, you see, the battle that we're fighting, the one that we should be angry with, is Satan and his demons. Because it is their desire and it is their goal to hinder the work of God, to destroy the work of God. To harm those whom God loves, to bring about injustice. When, when God looks out and he sees injustice and it displeases him and it makes him angry, that's what makes Satan happy. That's what delights Satan. Injustice. Wrong acts. Lack of truth. And so there is a sense in which we bring this wrath and this anger with us. But again, as we come from verse 12 to verse 13, it is not people. It is the demons that are having their way that we should be angry with. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God. Because of this demonic realm, because of the power that this demonic realm has in this world, there is a requirement for us to take up the whole armour of God. In the same way, in Isaiah 59, God looks out on the world and says, there's no one there. Now's the time to put on the armor. Now's the time to be a warrior. When God looks out on the world today, he does not need to say there is no one there. Because he has made us warriors. It's time for us to put on the armour and go to war. It's time for us to fight the enemy. And remember that all of this imagery is imagery of the, of the armour of God. Now, again, it's Christianese, isn't it? 
We're so familiar with the armour of God, the armour of God, the armour of God, put on the armour of God, that we forget what that means. It means that God, when he interacts with humanity and comes as a warrior in the Old Testament times, as he will in the second coming, when he comes as a warrior, he comes in a way that is expressed to us in the scripture through him putting on armour. Garments of wrath, we just read in Isaiah 59. It is his armour that we are putting on. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? When David finally twists Saul's arm and says, I'm going out, then they try and get Saul's armour onto David. But it don't fit. And so David goes out with his slingshot and with stones. And in a sense, he did go out in armour, but he went out in the armour of God. Now, when David tried to put on Saul's armour, he is putting on somebody else's armour. We, when we go to war, we're taking the very things that made God an effective warrior, and we're taking his armour and putting it on us. It's his armour. It belongs to him. He has made it, he has used it, and we are putting it on. And the really strange thing in all of this is that for David to put on Saul's armour, it was all big and clunky and it didn't fit him. And that was a ridiculous thing because he was just this young, this young lad and, and Saul's you know, a big strong guy and it, it didn't fit him. How much more ridiculous is it for us to put on armour that's made for God. Isn't that just crazy? And yet, it's armour that will fit us perfectly because we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's Him who is fighting, but He's fighting through us. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to put on the whole armour of God. Meaning, not that we're, we're going to become something that we're not. That is, that's the antithesis of everything that's been taught in Ephesians. We already have every blessing. It's that we're going to put on a warrior attitude. We're going to approach this as warriors. Why? So that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. So, there are days that are evil. And they're evil because of the devil, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces. And they are constantly trying to hinder the work of God. And how does God do his work? Through us. And what is the church? Ephesians 3. It is a display to those powers of the wisdom of God. And so the enemy hates us. And the enemy wants to hurt us. And we haven't got to come up with anything clever. We haven't got to come up with clever plans. We haven't got to be, you know, ingenious. We just need to stand. Four times the word stand is used in this passage. Stand, 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 stand. Next verse we're going to get to, it's going to say stand. 
We have all that we need. We just got to stand with the warrior might of God, which we already have. But we've got to think that way. That's what Paul's been saying all the way through Ephesians. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, but you need to understand, you need to learn, you need to grow, so that the blessings which you've been given, you can use, so you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. And so, we are going to withstand that evil day. We're not going to be taken down. The danger, the implication is, is that Satan and his, and his demons would be successful to some degree in hindering the work of God that God would do through us. So if we want to be used by God, then we need to be able to stand. So we're going to stand. That's the command. Interesting here, by the way, everybody sees lots of different commands. There are very few commands in this passage. The command in verse 14 is to stand. You're going to put on the armour of God, there's a command, so that you can stand, and now the command is to stand. Everything else that follows are participles, they're ing words, they're telling us how to stand. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now we've seen this already. Uh, in our Isaiah, so we'll bring that context with us. But God, His truth is what is right as opposed to what is wrong. Everybody get that? Oh, you say, well that's obvious, I know what truth is. Truth is, is what's true and, 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 and not what's wrong, well, not what's false. But in the context that we saw in Isaiah, it was truth like righteousness. Doing that is wrong. Doing this is right. The link, can you see the link between truth and righteousness? Do you remember back in Ephesians 4, the context of this, this latter half of the book of Ephesians, he was talking about truth and lies in the context not of saying something that's true and saying something that's false, telling a lie, but in the sense of when we live in a way that is not a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called, then we are lying about the gospel and that we're to walk in a truthful manner that accurately represents the work that Christ has done in us. So when he says here, put on the armour of God, the belt, which is the thing that holds everything else together, is not truth in the sense of the truth of the, of the, of the word of God. I know most people teach it that way, but I think con contextually with the latter half of Ephesians and contextually with Isaiah, what it's saying here is that, that everything else that we put on here is in the broader context of a walk that is truthful. Everything is held together by us doing what is right, living righteously. And you know, you can know your Bible really, really well, but if you go out and ignore it and you sin, then everything falls down. That's what it's talking about here. So that's the belt of truth, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, again, yes, I know righteousness is constantly in our minds, is the righteousness that is ours because Christ died for our sins and declared us to be righteous before God that we have what we call this imputed, this given righteousness, that we who though we sin are considered righteous before God and because we're considered right before God we're, de we're declared to be righteous, we're free of sin and we can be with God for eternity. That's righteousness, right? 
It's a good little sermon there, a little mini-sermon. But it's not really the context of, of Ephesians or the context of Isaiah, more importantly. Isaiah, we saw that word righteousness again and again and again in all of those passages. And in all of those contexts, it was that righteousness in the sense of judging righteously, doing what's right, not doing what's wrong. And the breastplate of righteousness, I think, in this context, is, is God saying, you know, it's not right that people are treated this way. And it's, and it's not right that these people get away with it. And, you know, the book of James just says this again and again and again, that God's heart is for the poor and the oppressed. That, that we just need to, to be people who exercise judgment. You know, widows and orphans. God's heart for the widows and the orphans, you know, again and again. And one thing that concerns me in so much of the church today is a total disregard of the poor and the suffering. A disregard for the hurting. A disregard for those cast aside by society. Now, that isn't to say that the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness is referring to social justice in any way. But what it is to say is this, if God's word is true, and if he's given us his righteousness, then when we go to war on behalf of him, we need to look like him. That the very thing that holds everything together, the thing that protects us from blows to the torso that might kill us, is the truth of God and the righteousness of God. Seeing things as God sees them. Making righteous judgments. Now, again, remember, all of this is in the context of going to war with our enemy, which is a spiritual enemy. So we need to be discerning in the spiritual realm. Not in the sense of saying, what's going on here spiritually, is that an angel or a demon, what have you, but just looking at the Word of God and saying, God says that this is right. God says that this is wrong. Not to the world in this context, not going out and saying to the world, hey, you need to stop doing that world, you need to start doing this world. Because that's ridiculous, because they haven't got the strength to do it, because they haven't been redeemed by the blood of Christ yet. Rather, it's going to the authorities, the rulers, to Satan, and saying, no, I'm not going to do that, because it's not right. I know it would be easier for me to not step in here, but I'm going to step in, because that's what God would have me do. It's interesting, I think, that being upright, being righteous in Isaiah 59, Isaiah said, that makes us pray. Wasn't that a bizarre phrase? He said, the upright become like prey. In other words, you do what's right, and you put yourself out on a limb, and there you are being attacked. And what was the solution to that situation? God the warrior coming. Well, God the warrior has come. And God the warrior indwells us. So we're not going to be worried about being the prey. We're going to step, step out. We're going to do what's right. Because that is part of the armor of God. Before God the warrior turned up in Isaiah 59... The people doing right were being hurt. 
Now that God has come in Christ and he's come in our hearts and he's come and we are in him and he is in us because he's given us his indwelling Holy Spirit, we are the ones who represent him and we're the ones who say that isn't right and we go out and that becomes our very protection. Our very protection is doing what's right. Let me just... I'm not sure I made that clear to myself, let alone you. Let me try again. In Isaiah, you do what's right and you become a victim. So God the warrior steps in. In Ephesians, God the warrior has come because he indwells us by his spirit. We are the warriors. And doing what's right protects us from being a victim. You say, well, hold on a second. I did what was right, and I got persecuted for it. Just like Isaiah 59. Ah, yes. But now, our enemy is a spiritual enemy. We're not waging against flesh and blood. So yes, you might step out and do the right thing, and you might still suffer loss, physically, financially, with friends, with reputation. But the devil hasn't touched you. That's the battle we're fighting. You know what? You can do what's wrong and, quote unquote, get away with it. Treat people badly. Not make sacrifices. Not love. Not go out of your way. Not step in when you need to step in. Make decisions that are ungodly. You can do that. And as a result, as a direct result of doing it, you might have a happier life. You really might. But you have been mortally wounded. Satan has won that battle. We've got to decide which battle we want to be in, folks. You want to fight for the American dream? You want to be comfortable, you want to be cosy, you want to have a happy life, be surrounded by people who love you, not have any difficulties, sail through life, be financially stable. Is, is that your battle? If that's your battle, you need a very different kind of armor. And you can go and find out about it yourself, because I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I'm losing that battle terribly. <laughs> but, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy wants us to be compromised in our faith. He wants us to deny our faith. He wants us to be ineffective in our faith. And he fights spiritual battles. And so doing what is right, right decisions, truthfulness, righteousness, these are the very foundation of our standing. In a sense, what Paul is saying in this passage is not something unrelated to what's gone before. It's a summary of what's gone before. Remember chapter 4? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called, with all humility and, and gentleness, with patience, forbearance. That's what he's talking about right now. That's God the warrior. God the warrior, you know, we picture the warrior as slaying and blood and the, the sword and, the, you know, and all of that. But for, for us, practically, that looks like peace and gentleness and kindness and self-control. It looks like humility 
It looks like gentleness. It looks like forbearance. They are the weapons. That's what it is. Truthful, righteous living. Now, then, having fastened the, the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so there is, I think, this sense in which the gospel, we are, we are shod with the gospel, as they say, you know. The, the gospel is there so that we're ready to go and give the message. And Isaiah 52 was our context, and it was the message that your God reigns. God is here. He's come. He's here. Your God reigns. And that's the gospel message. Now, remember, we're shod with the readiness. I think some Christians feel that that every time they open their mouth it has to be something Christian or otherwise they're not Christian enough. But it's not about that, it's about readiness. It's about looking for and praying for those opportunities so that when God says, right, now's the time that we have this opportunity, now we're ready. We're ready with the gospel. And I like the description here as a gospel of peace. That is a deliberate paradox. We're a warrior, warrior of God, putting on God's armor, going to war with the gospel of peace. Deliberate paradox. Because by destroying the enemy and his plans, we take the good news, which is the redemption of Christ, that his blood redeems, that the people are bound by sin, and that his blood sets them free from the effect of sin for eternity and the power of sin now. That's good news. And it brings about peace. I mean, it may not be peace in the physical realm. Try, try being a, I don't know, a, a Palestinian Muslim and suddenly declaring that you're going to be a Christ follower. See how peaceful that is for you. And for all of us to some degree, the following of Christ is not a peaceful thing. But the peace that is being referred to is peace with God. Peace in that struggle with sin. Man, you know one day when we see him face to face, <laughs> the, this struggling against sin will be over and we will be like him and we'll see him face to face and we'll be in perfect harmony and fellowship with him and then friends we will understand the complete fulfillment of the gospel of peace though the enemy wages war against us now that's the message that we have to come and, and the irony there is deliberate it's very deliberate we're going out in war when the enemy is trying to take people away from God and we're going out into battle with a message of peace yes it's bloody now but that message that gospel will ultimately bring about peace just remember our lives are but a breath and everything that we do and don't do will have ramifications for eternity. So there is the gospel of peace, being ready to go and do that and take that message out. Uh, verse 16 is a new sentence in English. It's not in the Greek. It's another participle. In all circumstances, it says, my version, take up, but literally it's taking up. So it's still linked to standing. We're standing 
having put on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having uh, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Um, so we, we are, uh, and one other thing with regards to that, by the way, that we ourselves are ready not just to give the gospel of peace, but we're ready because we've received that gospel of peace. And now standing because we're taking up the shield of faith in all circumstances. So here is, here is the shield of faith. Now I think the, the ones we've seen thus far are more sort of talking about general righteousness and the effect of the gospel. Now this is a little bit more specific insofar as we're going to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Now get this picture in your mind, okay? We've got our armor on, we've got the belt on, we've got the, the breastplate of righteousness on, we're, our shoes are ready, we're ready to move. And now we're going to take up, we're going to pick up a shield. And this shield specifically, faith, we'll talk about that in a minute, this shield is going to protect us because the enemy, the spiritual enemy that we're fighting, is firing darts. Okay? Firing fiery darts. Even better, isn't it? Um, so the idea is that there are, there are arrows, if you like, that uh, are on fire and can harm us and burn us, and we are preventing them from hitting us by our shield of faith. Now, the context here, and equally the context in Isaiah, doesn't really clarify what these flaming darts are. They're simply, uh, we're told, they are the, uh, the flaming darts of the evil one. So I think that's deliberate insofar as we can interpret it as broadly as we need to. The, the fiery dart for you, the flaming arrow for you is going to be different than the flaming arrow for me. Your weakness and my weakness will be different. Your temptation and my temptation will be different. But the solution is the same for all of us. So when the enemy comes against us, Okay, when he tries to harm us. Now, bear in mind what he's trying to harm here. We're not talking about the enemy lowering your bank account. We're not talking about the enemy um, giving you sickness or otherwise. We're talking about our spiritual well-being. And when he attacks our spiritual being, our spiritual well-being, he's doing things that are taking us away from what makes us strong. Now we know this. He's talking about standing. What are we standing on? Stand, 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 stand. We're standing on the work of God. That He's given us His Spirit, His Spirit is in us, that we are in Him and He is in us, and that we have this power now in Him. And Paul says, you've got to learn that, you've got to acknowledge, you've got to grow. God's blessed you with every spiritual blessing, but understand those blessings. Know the riches of truth. Know the hope that you have in the future. Know the power that you have within you. You've got to learn and understand what you have. So the flaming arrows of the enemy practically are going to be lies that take you away from those truths. Listen. The Holy Spirit within us gives us power. He is inherently powerful. He's the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms above all of these powers and authorities, right? So when the enemy comes to you and says, 
you're pathetic, you're useless and you can do nothing. What a waste of space you are. Why are you even bothering? Why, why, why even go to church? What, what, you know, oh, the pastor says that you're, you're going to minister to one another. What have you got to say to anybody? How are you going to help? You know nothing. When did you last read your Bible? You're so useless. The shield of faith stands against that by saying, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. I'm saved by grace, not by works, but I'm saved for works that he prepared beforehand for me to walk in them. He gave his son to die on the cross to redeem me, free me from sin. So it does matter if I do this. That's a lie, saying it doesn't matter. It does. I've been set free from that so I don't have to anymore. It's not true that I'm useless because the Spirit of God within me gives me purpose. It's faith in these things that God has revealed to us in this book that protect us from the lies of the enemy. That's why the first book I taught in this church is the book of Ephesians. Because it's so foundational. All of these truths are foundational. And the enemy wants to take these truths away from us. The enemy wants to tell us it's all a bunch of lies. Do you know, how, how, how dramatic has this book been? That the power that we have within us is the power that raised Christ above every authority. That the power of sin has been broken, that the Spirit of God lives within us, that we are going to one day see Christ face to face, and that every deed that we do, which He prepared beforehand for us to walk in them, that every one of those deeds will result in rewards for all eternity. There's just so much good stuff in this book, and we forget it, and we ignore it, and Satan comes and fires his arrows, and we go, uh huh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the solution is to take up. We stand by taking up that shield of faith and it extinguishes those darts. I am of value. He chose me before the foundation of the world. Boom. That's that one gone. But you know, they rain down. They rain down. Those arrows. You ever play those little silly games? These, these have, have them on little video games. And sometimes you'd be driving and sometimes you'd be a spaceship. And all different scenarios. You probably some of you play them on your phones now. And initially, the games, these little games, they start slowly. Okay, so I don't know, maybe they're balls you've got to hit with a bat, just for argument's sake. And so a ball comes in and you go, okay, boom, you hit your button. Oh, that was easy. Another ball comes, oh, there's another one. Boom. Oh, there's a ball over there. So you, you move along with your arrows or your joystick or whatever, and then boom, you hit the button, hit the ball. That's easy. And then you get to level 752, and the balls are going boom, 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 boom. The enemy roams around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't play fair, he doesn't play nice, doesn't give us multiple lives like video games. 
Each day that we live is a day that passes, never to return. He doesn't care about whether we've conquered level 3 before he throws us into level 33. Though I do believe the Lord protects us in that regard to some degree. He just wants us to burn. And so he fires his darts as often as he can, in as many ways as he can. And guys, that's why Ephesians is your foundation. Go back to it again and again and again and again. And remind yourself of who God is and what he has done for you. So that when those darts come, fired at all sorts of clever angles with all sorts of ingenuity, that you are constantly there, standing firm, doing the work of the God, because you're standing with faith, knowing who he is and what he's done. And take the helmet of salvation, verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we're going to... I'm going to finish off with these next two in part, and then we'll come back next week, because I want to spend more time on praying in the Spirit. We'll come back next week and we'll pick up verse 17 again. But just to, to wrap up our armor for now, take the helmet of salvation, we saw that specifically in Isaiah 59, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, the helmet of salvation... Um, I've got more to say about salvation, and I'll say it next time, because I'm going to get distracted again, and, you know, you're probably getting hungry already. So, we'll come, we will come back to verse 17 next time, but for now, let's look at salvation in the sense of the helmet of salvation is that we are protected. You know, and again, re remember this was God's armour. He had a helmet of salvation. What did he need saving from? The helmet was him offering salvation. Now I think, you know, when Paul takes this analogy and he gives it to us, what is he saying? I think he's saying that the salvation that God gives and God gave is the salvation that protects us. You know, you, you want someone dead, a headshot is a good way to do it, is it not? And our salvation is our headshot. Know your salvation, folks. Know it well. And salvation doesn't mean knowing that you're going to heaven, though that is part of it. It's knowing that you've been saved from sin. Oh, what can I do? I can't help it. Yeah, we can. That's why he died. He died to show that sin was conquered, to give us power over sin. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in us. I don't know about you, but I haven't raised anybody, anybody from the dead lately. But the, but the same power that raised Christ from the dead is within me, but it's power for me to live that holy life, to be, have truth and to have righteousness coming from me. And so the helmet of salvation is part of that. And, and we need, and again, I'll come back to it next time because there's a lot more I want to say, but we need to understand the protection we have from understanding the salvation that God's given to us. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the one weapon that is mentioned here, which is a weapon of attack rather than defense, 
is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we see that in the Gospel accounts. A great example is the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, which the details are given in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, where each time the enemy came to Jesus, Jesus responded with Scripture. And he responded with Scripture, and what happens after that he's been attacked is that Satan then goes away and departs. We want to fight back because we don't want to just give the enemy free reign to throw an arrow of fire, arrow of fire, arrow of fire, arrow of fire, arrow of fire at us, do we? We want to attack back and the way to do that is with the Word of God. So we need to know our Bibles well and we need to know the truth contained within it. And I'm not talking about competitions, about who can memorize the most verses. And yes, when you say, I'm not quite sure where it is, but I'm not quite sure the exact expression, that'll do for now. <laughs> that'll do for now. Let's, let's make sure that we know the truth of Scripture. You know, Anthony was preaching that in Ephesians. Was it chapter 3 or chapter 4? Doesn't matter, it's still true. Still can be used to fight back against the enemy. And I want us to understand, uh, and again, well, again, I'll talk more about this next time, but I want us to understand this whole arm that we've spoken about this morning. That all of these things, I, I don't want to put too much distinction between them all because there is a general picture and that's where we're going to leave it today. The general picture is this, is that God is a warrior. And he came to the aid of his people and he came to exercise justice and righteousness. And that in Paul's understanding of the Christian faith, we, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are now the presence of God on this earth. And we, therefore, have become the warriors of God. And the enemy is going to try and do work. And as much as we view this as being us as individuals being protected, and I confess, I talked about that in that context predominantly today. Understand this. God is going out into the world to hinder the work of the enemy, to hinder unrighteousness and injustice. And we, corporately, are the warrior of God, and we go with God's righteousness and do right, wherever we are, wherever our job is, wherever we live, wherever we go to work, we go and we take that righteousness of God with us. We go as warriors to hinder the work of the enemy. How are you going to stop the enemy? How are you going to wage war against him today, tomorrow, the next day? You're going to preach the gospel? You're going to give a word of love? You're going to encourage someone? You're going to be a peacemaker? You're going to represent Christ properly. You're going to show and exercise humility. We live in an era where we think that the way to bring about change is winning an argument. Whereas exercising humility will accomplish far more. That's what it means to be a warrior, folks. To go out and represent God to the world. And we have being equipped with this stuff because of what Christ has done for us. That's the book of Ephesians, because of the blessings. What he's saying here is recognize you're a warrior. Recognize that the enemy is against you. Recognize what you can do in response. And go and live this life.
And I pray that we will. I pray that we who have the Holy Spirit, we who are saved by the blood of Christ, will go out into that world as warriors, defended against the enemy, attacking his work, and doing what's right. Not with the weapons of the flesh and the weapons of the world, but with this righteousness, this manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called, that Paul has been speaking of. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be no walkovers. That the enemy wouldn't have his way with us. I pray we would stand, stand, stand. With the blessings you've given us, with the tools that you've given us. Pray that we stand for each other. Blessing one another, loving one another. That we might stand together. And I pray, Lord, that we, like you, may be clothed with truth and righteousness and salvation. Pray that we would go into the world and represent you. Not simply with great arguments and rhetoric, but that we would represent you with the way that we live our lives. With humility, with gentleness, with forbearance, with love. May we hate the enemy. May we hate the sin that he loves. And may we fight. Stand firm in what you've done for us. That we might represent you to this world and to the enemy who so seeks to harm us. Amen.